This episode contains descriptions of domestic violence, emotional abuse, and animal abuse. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The following is from Edith Wharton's Kerfol. The dogs stood motionless, watching me. I knew by this time that they would not try to prevent my approaching the house, and the knowledge left me free to examine them. I had a feeling that they must be horribly cowed to be so silent and inert, yet they did not look hungry or ill-treated. I should have liked to rouse them for a minute, to coax them into a game or a scamper. But the longer I looked into their fixed and weary eyes, the more preposterous the idea became. With the windows of that house looking down on us, how could I have imagined such a thing? The dogs knew better. They knew what the house would tolerate and what it would not. The impression they produced was that of having in common one memory so deep and dark that nothing that had happened since was worth either a growl or a wag. Hi everyone, I'm Alastair Murden, and this is Haunted Places Ghost Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Ghost stories have arisen from every century and every corner of the world, from the streets of Victorian Whitechapel to the temples of Japan. Whether seated around the campfire or curled up with a pair of headphones, we return to them time and again to feel our skin crawl and our hearts race. Episodes of Ghost Stories are inspired by classic short stories from some of history's greatest authors. The following version is our own unique take. It may feel familiar in some ways and different in others. We hope you enjoy it. You can find episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's story is an uncharacteristically eerie tale from one of America's most celebrated novelists, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Edith Wharton. Wharton's 1916 story, Kerfol, is a unique take on the haunted house tale, thanks to its story-within-a-story framework. The narrative follows a young man who travels to the Brittany region of France, where his close friend has encouraged him to buy property. But while looking into the history of a local estate, he uncovers an unsettling tale. I'll be telling this story from the perspective of Alfred, the young member of the British gentry who investigates the mysterious property. But it's not ghostly voices or bloody rumors that pique Alfred's curiosity. It's the presence of five dogs with a very dark past. Coming up, we'll meet the hounds that guard a haunted estate. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. 
with more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from 50 to $500. Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. You can't say that I don't humor you, Lan Ravan. It's only because I adore you, and because I did very much want to be your neighbor, that I agreed to take a look at this ridiculous, oddly named French manner you suggested, Kerfol. That was my mistake, because even if it did belong to your family, old boy, I doubt you knew what went on at that house. Or at least, I hope you didn't. Kerfol is a sprawling estate, a castle complete with a tree-lined drive, a fortified gate, towers, and even a moat. But when I arrived, a closer look at the place revealed that the towers were crumbling and the moat was filled not with brackish water, but sharp brambles and shrubs. I was not especially impressed, but still, I waited patiently for the groundskeeper to show me the rest of the property. I leaned against the wall and puffed a cigarette, watching the smoke swirl in the morning air. It was the only thing that seemed to move in this landscape. Everything else was unusually still. Once I'd finished, the groundskeeper still had not come. So I grumbled, ashed my cigarette, and made my way across the moat. Strangely enough, the gate was open. Its rusted iron points bared down on me like the fangs of some great wolf. I rushed beneath it quickly, hoping it wouldn't come loose and ruin my new coat. Then, just as I was about to cross the courtyard, a dog stood in my path. Now, I was raised with fox and wolfhounds, so I know how to engage a dog. But this one lacked the mix of cheerfulness and wild abandon of an average pup. And I would know. In truth, I share a few qualities with the animals. I understand a dog's need to chase whatever catches his fancy with charming ruthlessness. In fact, there are many women and men in London who might call me a dog. Fondly, of course. But this dog was no charming, lumbering beast. I believe we call this breed a sleeve Pekingese back home. He was comically small and his golden fur made him look about as frightening as an overgrown orange chrysanthemum. The little gentleman looked far too stately and well cared for to belong to this place. I put out my hand for him to sniff, but he just looked at me with his big brown eyes, making no sound at all. I felt a strange tension radiating off him, and I braced myself for some pesky nips at my ankles. But he didn't move, or whimper, or bark. He just watched me.
After a long moment, I stepped forward and the dog trotted into the shadows. I tutted and turned to walk away when I nearly tripped over another dog. I jumped at the sight of him. It was a brindled mutt with a bad leg. But though he glared at me, he didn't make a sound either. I found myself shrinking under his judgmental gaze. Then I realized how utterly ridiculous that was. I was a scourge of London ballrooms, but one look of disapproval from a French dog affected me more than all the protective mothers of the city. I looked around for the Pekingese, but soon my eyes spotted another canine, a long-haired white mongrel much taller than the other two. It stood shivering and watching me with serious eyes. I knew not to glare directly at the dogs, lest I challenge them unintentionally. And though they were silent, their teeth looked very sharp. I glanced to the right and saw that the brindle had drawn closer. Then when my gaze returned to the front, the Pekingese stared out from between the white dog's front paws. I stifled a laugh. This tiny dog general and his two comrades had me surrounded. It was comical, really. But just as I thought the situation couldn't become more absurd, I saw behind them in one of the house's empty window frames was a pale white pointer, its head cocked as if considering me. I could have sworn that I saw the shadow of a woman behind the pointer, but when I blinked, all I saw was the dog. So, you've got a sniper up in the house, eh? I remarked to the Pekingese. I let out a dry laugh, but the sound was caught in my throat. I turned to see a dusty black greyhound with icy blue eyes had trotted up behind me, joining the pack. He didn't make a single sound as he approached. The thought unsettled me. I stood there, very still. I tried not to look at the dogs directly, yet I didn't dare turn away. Instead, I listened to the world around me. Leaves rustled, and the iron gates groaned against the blowing wind. Yet the animals still made no sound. They watched me, waiting for something, though I did not know what. A great unease was growing within me. Half of me wanted to run. But then I considered the little furry general. His beady eyes were still fixed upon me, as if I had offended his fluffy nobility. Perhaps, I thought... I could reason with this Pekingese. Permission to approach? I asked, kneeling down to his level and holding my hand out once again. But my swift movement sent the little dog behind the pointer's legs. I sighed. Oh, come now, gents. I only wish to know the rules of engagement. These creatures were quite odd indeed. Their coats were pristine and they did not look malnourished aside from the shivering one with the bad leg. It seemed almost as if they'd been raised by people who never spoke or looked at them, as if the silence of that place had made them as silent and broken as the ruins of Kerfol itself. I yearned for them to hop, to bark, to behave as I knew a dog should. But instead, their eyes shifted from me to the house. I got the sense that they wouldn't budge 
until given a command from someone they respected, which was clearly not me. You poor pathetic things. You look as if you've seen a ghost, I exclaimed. I pondered then that perhaps there was a ghost at the estate, and if so, there was no one for it to appear to but that strange pack of dogs. I looked at them closely. The rigid nature of their backs and tails gave them a depth far beyond that of those small, sweet things we dote on and adore. They seemed more aware of darkness than I have been in my brief and privileged life. It broke my heart, and it frightened me too. The pointer bared his fangs, and I flinched. He made no sound, yet I could feel the growl that should have left his throat. The Pekingese was painfully still, his cold eyes fixed on me. His mouth opened, tiny tongue moving over white teeth. He sniffed, and then the dogs charged. I backed up in a panic. They were manic and angry, biting and snapping at the air. I nearly tripped as I turned and ran. But my car seemed so far away, and their sharp teeth were so very, very near. Coming up, we meet the owner of those hellish hounds. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa from Parcast. If you haven't had a chance to check out my series, Mythology, you don't know what you're missing. Heroes, gods, monsters, and mayhem. This podcast has it all. Every Tuesday, take a deep dive back in time, exploring the history, origins, and meaning behind the myths that have shaped the earth. Each episode of Mythology dramatizes a story pulled from beliefs from around the world, giving insight into how our ancestors saw the universe and how those stories resonate in our lives today. Recent episodes include the epic battle between Hercules and Theseus, the grieving spirit known as La Llorona, and a treacherous journey to the land of the dead. Catch new episodes every Tuesday and binge the classics anytime. Follow Mythology free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, gift mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Now... Back to the story. I ran as fast as my feet could carry me, with those eerie creatures only one or two paces behind snapping at my heels. Then I threw myself into my car. But believe me, Lonravan, I barely escaped. Are you sure you didn't know about the strange silent dogs that haunted the Kefola estate? If you were hiding something from me, shame on you. You know how I feel about secrets. 
But if you weren't, well, I suppose I have a lot to tell you. After that bizarre encounter, I was a bit shaken to say the least. But I was also curious. After all, if I am to consider buying the estate, I want to know who owned these mongrels. So I visited a local historian to learn more about the strange place. As per usual, the most interesting stuff was barely explained in official records. Thank heavens for scandal sheets and the enduring appeal of gossip. I'll warn you that this winding tale is not a tidy one. It's like those dogs. Once you think you've seen them all, a new one appears, adding to the intrigue. And there was a great deal of intrigue and horror at Kerfoel. Three hundred years ago, the estate had a visit from another Larivan. Your great great something, I'd imagine. And he got wrapped up in some nasty business with the manor's lord, one Baron Yves de Corneau. The Baron was a broad, bookish man, religious too. He was not the sort that went to church twice a week and forgot about it after. No, he was an avid believer in the fire and brimstone approach to faith. The Baron's first wife had died years ago, and he was in his 62nd year when he married a young woman named Anne de Berrigan. The gossip was that he was good to her, and she tempered his fervor. He was kinder to debtors, gentler to peasants. It seemed Anne had changed him for the better, until one looked closer. In reality, Anne de Corneau was not allowed to see any living soul her husband did not approve of. She couldn't even walk Kerfol's grounds unaccompanied when he was away on business, which he was frequently. But despite, or perhaps because of, his rigid rules, the Baron did shower Anne with gifts every time he returned from abroad. His greatest present was a Pekingese, stolen from a Chinese noblewoman and smuggled around the world to Kerfol. Anne adored little Jeremiah, or Jeremy, as she called him. She doted on him hand and paw. This isn't just gossip, by the way. I was lucky enough to find her diary. And, might I add, her description of the little dog sounds exactly like the devilish Pekingese that watched me at Kerfol when I visited 300 years later. But I digress. Anne's entries from this time paint a happy picture. She dotes on Jeremy and laments her struggles in training him. She rarely mentions her husband, the Baron. Instead, her diary became a manual. Pages of specific canine obedience regimens. Eventually, Anne was able to get Jeremy to come to her side with a single whistle. Her sister later told investigators that she'd never heard such happy tales from her sister before. Anne's life was actually rather troubled, and according to her sister, Anne's marriage was on the mend until tragedy struck. Less than a year after Jeremy's arrival, the Baron de Corneau was found dead. Poor Anne found him. The sheriff who questioned her mentions in his report that she was drenched in blood and delirious. 
Anne had discrepancies in her story. Anne claimed she heard the Baron screaming from her bedroom, but the walls were too thick to hear a person in the hall, let alone a floor below. There was also the matter of the courtyard door. It was found open, and Anne had no explanation as to why. This, Laravan, is where your ancestor appeared. Though he denied any involvement, news emerged that a man named Hervé de Laravan was seen leaving Kerfol estate the night of the murder. This man was no stranger to Kerfol or to Anne. No, he'd been around for months before the Baron was butchered. Dogs require walks, and like her husband, Anne did not want to let her most beloved companion out of her sight. So she made Jeremy a collar out of her favorite jeweled bracelet and would walk him about on her trips to church. Perhaps we should blame the Pekingese because he took to Hervé first. Little Jeremy bounded up to a handsome man at the top of the hill, dragging Anne behind him on his leash. She tried to follow her husband's rules and stay away, but they talked for a moment before her servants caught up. She felt the brush of his hand against hers as he started his descent. I wonder if his skin was as soft as yours. Over the next few weeks, they spoke briefly like this once or twice more, always with little Jeremy in tow. Though Anne later told the constables that her relationship with Hervé was chaste, she did admit that he was smitten. On one of their walks, Hervé begged her to give him some token to remember her by when he traveled abroad, and Anne, apparently, could not refuse his charms. <laughs> if he was anything like you, I understand why. But at the time, she had nothing of her own to give. So she removed Jeremy's jeweled collar and handed it to Hervé. When she returned to Kerfol, clever Anne made a show of upending every cushion and pillow she could find as if searching for the collar. She and the servants tore apart the house and grounds looking for the thing, but of course, no one could find it. When her husband came home from his trip, Anne honored him in every way. Then, in the evening, she settled in to read, with her little dog at her feet. Soon, the Baron came in and surveyed his young wife as she read. His eyes glittered in the firelight as he spoke. You look like my great-grandmother, Julianne, lying in the chapel with her feet on a little dog. Anne looked at him strangely. It was unsettling to be compared to a dead woman lying in a casket, but she forced a laugh all the same. Well, when I am dead, you must bury me beside her, carved in marble, with my dog at my feet. He laughed too, though there was no joy in his eyes. <laughs> we'll see. After all, the dog is the emblem of fidelity. Anne's heart raced. She had only spoken to Hervé a few times. She had no idea how the Baron would even know about their conversations. But even so, it was nothing compared to her husband's affairs abroad. His infidelity had hurt her before, but now that she had Hervé's admiration, she found her courage. Anne set her book down and asked, 
And do you doubt my right to lie with my dog at my feet? With false grace, he said, When I doubt, I examine, dearest Anne. But I swear you shall have your monument if you earn it. She snapped back, And I swear to be faithful, if only for the sake of having my little dog at my feet. The next morning, Anne woke and felt a strange lump beside her. She sat herself up and stared in horror. The stiff lump was Jeremy. Her little shadow, her precious pet. His fur was bloody and matted, and his eyes were wide open, staring directly at her. Then, Anne's eyes caught a hint of gold. The jeweled collar she'd given Hervé was twisted around her dog's neck, twisted so tightly that he'd suffocated. Anne's diaries are filled with pages of grief over this dog. She claimed to hear him yipping in the middle of the night, but when she'd wake up half-conscious and whistle, the noise would stop. After that morning, the Baron's cruel side returned. He had a peasant hanged and beat one of his horses to death. But worst of all, Hervé seemed to disappear from town. Anne lived in terror. But the question that plagued her day and night was how the Baron had found the collar she'd given Hervé. She did not know if her husband had killed Hervé or hidden him away in some torture chamber. When the Baron smiled at her across the dining table, she was sure her paramour was dead. Anne resolved to never demonstrate care for anyone again. But eventually, care came to her. A small white dog with a feathery coat wandered to Kerfol, and Anne insisted on adopting the innocent creature. That very night, she found the white dog strangled on her pillow. Anne wrote in her diary that she was resolute now. She would keep no pets, have no friends. But she made the mistake of scratching the gatekeeper's old pointer behind the ears once. The next day, the dog was killed. When her sister came for a visit a month later, her own dog, Plato, was found strangled in Anne's bedroom. The pack of doomed animals grew despite her every effort. Showing kindness to any creature was the gravest form of disobedience to the Baron, and he was as exacting in his training as Anne had been with Jeremy, if far more cruel. Anne was at her wit's end, until she received a secret note from Hervé. He was alive, and he promised he would come for her the next night and take her away. Anne had no way of sending a message to dissuade the foolhardy young man. She could only hope her husband would sleep deeply on the night Hervé arrived. On that fateful night, Anne writes that she tiptoed downstairs with the intention of sending her would-be saviour away. She reached the side door to the courtyard and opened it a crack. She saw Hervé's face and her heart leapt. But that's when she heard the Baron 
cursing her from the floors above. She yelled at Hervé to run, then turned back to the stairs to face her husband. But the Baron didn't come. Instead, Anne heard pawing and scratching on the landing above, but she did not dare investigate it. Then, the snarling and screaming began, until everything went quiet. The next day, the Baron was found in a pool of blood, nearly torn to pieces on the stairs leading to his wife's room. Anne insisted that a pack of dogs killed the husband, though there had been no living dogs at Kerfol in months. The prosecutor did not know what to make of it, and neither did the judges. Anne could not be convicted, yet her claims were preposterous. Instead, the judges ruled that she be given to the care of her in-laws, who shut her up in Kerfol. There Anne remained as trapped in the estate as she had been while the Baron was alive. And it was there, they say, she died as a harmless madwoman. Meanwhile, Hervé escaped the scandal unscathed. He married a jeweler's daughter and bought this lovely estate for her after Anne's early death. I don't mean to say he planned the Baron's demise, but he certainly didn't help Anne after she was locked away. Did he lose interest? Was he ever interested? Or are all men dogs? I want reassurance that you aren't like your ancestor, Laravan. That you haven't, as the Americans say, set me up. <laughs> uh, there are easier ways to break things off with someone than to send them away to our haunted estate. Or perhaps you really were clueless about the whole thing. Maybe I've just lost my head. And that may certainly be the case, for I did leave out a vital detail from my earlier canine encounter, and a rather peculiar detail at that. After the pack of dogs lunged, I did run to the car and I did get in. But those machines can be difficult, and as luck would have it, my automobile chose that crucial moment not to start. I was trapped and I braced myself for a terrible, bloody end. The hounds of Kerfol ran for me, fangs bared, tongues lolling in their fearsome mouths. But then they froze, staring at a spot I could not see from my hunkered-down position. I lifted my head and saw my saviour. She took my breath away. Her gossamer dress and pale hair rippled like water in a breeze I could not feel, and her delicate hands were clasped together like an icon of a saint. I have no doubt it was Anne de Corneau. This angelic creature, she looked upon those dogs with such adoration, such fondness, but you must understand how my blood ran cold as she whistled. It was both the most piercing and most beautiful sound I'd ever heard. Those silent, angry dogs stood at attention in perfect regimental harmony, all led by their little general, Jeremy. 
and as she whistled different tones, each animal responded to their tone, bounding up to her with affection and love. Anne smiled at them. Then she smiled at me, before floating back to the house. Forgive me, dear friend, but I need to take some time for myself. I cannot purchase Kerfol, even though, or perhaps because, it would bring us even closer together. After what I've learned, I fear I wouldn't survive. It is frightening to see a ghost, yes, but there is one reality that frightens me more. Anne had those dogs very well trained, Laravan. Very well trained indeed. Edith Wharton was the first woman to win a Pulitzer Prize and one of the first to gain full membership to the American Academy of Arts and Letters. But there's a darker story at the heart of her accolades. While Wharton's books frequently centered on women, she herself had few friendships with them and none with other successful women writers. She instead favored the company of men. In fact, Wharton was reportedly hostile toward the wives of members of her elite literary circle, displaying either jealousy or pity in equal measure. In many cases, Edith Wharton was one of the richest members of her social circle thanks to her inherited wealth. And yet, some of her female characters didn't have such privileged circumstances. For instance, the lead of her novel The House of Mirth is a woman who suffers from financial instability and uses her beauty in attempts to escape her station. But she falls to ruin instead. Anne de Corneau, the abused wife at the center of Kerfol, fits similarly into this mold. Her beauty attracts a powerful man who views her as more of a pet than a person. And though Anne develops agency through her own pet ownership, the Baron punishes her for it. Anne is ultimately avenged when her husband dies, but she has no part in that retribution. Instead, in the original story, she goes to trial for her husband's murder and after is locked in Kerfol by her husband's family, dying as a, quote, harmless madwoman. Like Wharton's other heroines, she is devoured by a world far bigger than her. Baron Yves de Corneau's punishment is so satisfying that one wishes Anne had been allowed to partake in it. Perhaps she was a good actress, and she really did. Maybe she conspired with her faithful, ghostly hounds to kill the Baron and lied about it, or maybe not. But if she did, good for her. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places Ghost Stories. We will be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you on the other side.
Haunted Places Ghost Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Haunted Places Ghost Stories was written by Lil DeRitter and Jennifer Roche, with writing assistance by Alex Garland, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs>